Hello, welcome to today's episode of Juice and the Numbers, your movies and entertainment podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Tracing. And I'm Corwin Heller. And it's Movies Day. It's Thursday. Thursday is Movies Day. Actually, by the time you listen to this, it's Friday. Uh, we had a delay of one single day uh, of the podcast due to some travel, some unexpected last-minute uh, travel that uh, Corwin had to partake in due to work. So we, we delayed the sweet satisfaction of your podcast listening by an entire 24 hours. And for that, we're sorry. In honor of how much we shit on every possible demographic that we could piss off, uh, fuck anyone from Long Island. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna double down on that. Fuck like ninety. Fuck the entire non-Jewish population of Long Island. That, that's where I stand on the matter. Seinfeld, your your bunch over there is all good, but everyone else can go. <laughs> Uh, just, I had a joke, but you calling out Jerry Seinfeld is just anything after that is just moop, <laughs> moop, the moops. I'm sorry. <laughs> Correct answer is moops. It's a mis. It's it's a misprint. All right. Anyway, we could do this all day long. Um. So yeah. Anyway, today's the movies day. We're talking about uh, 1987's Good Morning Vietnam and 1970's Kelly's Heroes. Corwin, where would you like to start? I was really hoping you would say Good Morning Vietnam the way you're supposed to say Good Morning oh, Vietnam. Oh, we'll get there. Okay, okay. Let's, uh, let's start with that, because I watched that most recently. All right, all right. I'm very excited. Uh, so we're going to start with 1987 and Good Morning! Vietnam, uh, directed by Barry Levinson, written mm-hmm. by Mitch Markowitz, starring Robin Williams, Forrest Whitaker, Tom T. Tran, um, Bruno Kirby's in this. Uh, other people who I recognize the faces of and don't know their names are also in this movie. Uh, <laughs> you know them. You've seen them. They're there. Uh, it had an estimated budget of $13 million, a cumulative worldwide gross of $124 million. Certainly a success. Corwin, what do you think the, uh, the tagline is for this? This is Robin Williams' best movie. Come watch it. Uh, it is the wrong man, period. In the wrong place, period. At the right time, period. Which still isn't cool, but it's definitely the best of the ones we've read. Yeah, it's definitely the best, but the bar is real low. Oh, super, super low. Um, it has a single Oscar nomination. It was for Robin Williams for Best Actor in a Leading Role. He lost that year to Michael Douglas for Wall Street. Uh, it is about Robin Williams as a radio DJ during the Vietnam conflict in 1965. Corwin, what did you think of this movie? Uh, I genuinely do think that this is Robin Williams' best movie. Um, You know, I had a rough day at work. I'll be honest with y'all. I was not in the best of moods starting up this movie. I got home and I turned it on. And I was like, all right, this is going to be a shitty review because I'm just going to be in one of those moods. It's going to ruin the movie for me. And the second Robin Williams opens up his mouth, it's just like, oh, this is 
No fret, man. This is the best. Robin Williams just melts away the tension, melts away the anger. Just his energy and just his positivity is infectious, and I just miss him so much. You know the best part about listening to Robin Williams do all the radio shows? What? All of it was improvised. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. That now, was I was my... telling... No, go ahead. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> Josh, I was telling Cal, like, that's one of the best parts about watching Robin Williams movies because, like, most of his fucking lines in everything is improvised, and it's so good. It's always so fucking good. Like, one of my favorite Robin Williams facts is the fact that they had Robin Williams record all of his lines for Aladdin before they did the animation for the genie because they knew that he was going to ad-lib it anyway and they'd have to reanimate to go along with what he was saying so they just let him do it first which is not how animation is done um and the fact that like they you work around that level of genius is just oh oh i love it so much i live for robin williams i would fucking kill for a chance to see a behind the scenes documentary on this movie where they just have an hour, hour and a half of just uncut Robin Williams footage of him just doing all of these fucking crazy, unique, um, just unbelievably lively and funny characters just nonstop. It's it's amazing. It's perfection. I know. I, I, I got to imagine there's a ton of it out there because, you know, like they must have recorded so much more footage than got put in the film just for the sake of time. You know, but yeah, oh man, yeah. I honestly would think that I feel like that's the sixth time I've said I honestly think, but I honestly think that a documentary about the making of this movie would be possibly better than this movie itself, which is saying a lot. It's a fantastic film. So you're going for an apocalypse now uh, kind of situation? Yes, but hopefully a little less going crazy. True, true. Um, real quick, something I did not realize is that this film's original draft of its script was written by a man whose name is also Adrian Cronauer. Um, he said that the film is 45% accurate to his life story, which is crazy. Um, I did not know that. Uh, and that's a wild fact. Yeah. I just love the idea of like some dude walking into a, a you know, network meeting network conference room going to pitch this idea for a movie pitching a script and it's like yo adrian sit sit down how is everything okay what's this about it's about this dude that's the funniest man alive cool love it what's his name adrian interesting all right original love it last name cronauer oh well that's that's got a lot of vowels doesn't it yes uh, so this film, I always think about in two parts. I, I, I don't think it, I don't know if you're, if you get the same vibe of, uh, of like a real big, like a side and B side to the film, but I always think about it in terms of the front half, which is very much so about like counterculture, Robin Williams taking on the man in the military. And then the second half is your best friend was a fucking terrorist the whole time. And almost killed you, like, by accident. Um, and then grappling with, with that interaction with the Viet Cong. Um, do you, did you, did you, get, do you get any kind of sense of that? 
Oh, absolutely. It was one of those things where it's like I made note in the first half of the movie how like, man, like this is so funny. Like I love this. I love seeing like peak Robin Williams. But this like love story is just not really doing it for me. It's kind of like really breaking up this great comedic flow and all that. But like if we're going to get a little bit deeper with it, I'd rather see like a more psychological side of this. Like what's this doing for like the people who listen? Like how hard is it to like be this energetic and positive when all this bad shit's going on around you? Like I'd love to see like a psychological side of this movie that like this you know wishy-washy love story just isn't doing it for me and then the bar scene happened where you know he gets pulled out and right as they're walking away the bar explodes and just sends the movie careening down a completely different direction than the first half and it was like whoa like this is exactly what i was thinking about like this went from like a funny movie that's just like you know lost into its own time and tries to do something that nowadays just it's a little corny into like wow this is deep emotional this is the other side of robin williams we love to see and um i really love the change of direction um i I have a few points i want to make about it uh the uh, first point i'll say is i i found it so Every time I watch the movie, um, which again, it's been a, it's been a while, um, I I see different things about because when I, when I was a kid, because you know I first watched my in case we haven't gathered by how frequently I mentioned the kinds of movies I watched as a childhood. My parents didn't give a fuck about ratings, um, so I, I first watched this movie when I was pretty fucking young. Um, you know, you only pick out the funny bits, um, and. Then, you know, when I got older, it was, you know, you see the romance and now I'll, I'll get into what I think of it now. But the fact that it doesn't fall down the, the rabbit hole of the romance part of it, the thing that we gave so much shit to Bridge on the River Kwai for is so nice because it, it looks like it for like a minute there. It looks like it's going to be about Robin Williams being funny on the radio and then just chasing around this this Vietnamese woman, which, um, as you know, you're, you're going to love Robin Williams, but like you don't need to see that. You know, like it's like watching Patch Adams. It's like, yeah, like I love watching Robin Williams, but pure, but curing cancer with comedy is not the basis for a real movie. Um, it's just and, like it's filler. It's fluff. Yeah, yeah. It w- it would be like just any old rom com. And luckily, it. I feel like you usually the, these types of movies usually go in reverse, and it's what makes them terrible. It's usually like you know, Robin Williams would meet this cool Vietnamese dude who ends up having a really hot sister that he goes after for the rest of the film and kind of abandons his friendship with the cool Vietnamese dude. And instead, Rob Williams is chasing this Vietnamese woman and then ends up meeting her super cool brother and spending the rest of the movie hanging out with him, which I love that. Oh, yeah. I didn't think about that, but I do really appreciate that. Right? It's like the total reverse of how this shit usually goes in movies. Um, And... I'm gonna I'm gonna take that moment um, or or that thought and pivot to this. I think this film does a phenomenal job paying respect and and uh, being I'm gonna say the word respectful again or respect again, but being very respectful to the Vietnamese people because it really shows a lot of one the nuance of 
what it meant to be Viet Cong and the fact that Robin Williams could have this, you know, really wonderful relationship with this young man who ended up being a a member of the opposition military as a result of America's involvement in his nation. And it shows that like these are these are people who ended up fighting on behalf of um Vietnam fighting on behalf of uh, I guess we'll say northern Vietnam uh at this time like these are people who felt as though they had been injusticed by America and were responding back but at the end of the day they were normal people who like ate really spicy food and like laughed at Americans being dumb and teaching them swear words you know the the fact that there was no really negative Vietnamese characters outside of a few like no line having Viet Cong near the end everyone was super kind and welcoming and respectful and inviting the English class people were hilarious um trans whole or twans I always get the name wrong I'm bad with names his whole family was super kind when they went on that enormous group date um Robin Williams is very respectful to the culture, trying the food and going along with the customs. Like it's, it paints the Vietnamese in a very, very nice light, which is something that you would not expect from a movie made in 1987. Yeah. uh, I was going to say it does an excellent job of, especially that ending scene with uh, Tuan, where he, is really just letting out all that emotion with that final climatic uh, confrontation between him and Robin Williams. And it's really amazing how they get you to empathize with someone who, you know, we grew up seeing in media as this, you know, ruthless, savage enemy, because that's the stereotype of, you know, classic American military army movies where we are the great do-gooders of the world. We do no wrong. We bring peace and prosperity to every place we touch. And it's, it's not, we're going in and, you know, we're starting a war with the people of this country with, you know, different morals than our own and different beliefs and cultures. And at the end of the day, like he says, we're killing their mother, brother, neighbors, you know, the people in their community just for being people in their community that they view as enemies because we're soldiers and fighting their countrymen. And he says it like you Americans don't view me as human. We're just little Vietnamese. And it it's like, wow, like this is, you know, one of the few movies that really draw out a clear emotion of pure empathy with, the people that we are essentially programmed to view as bad people, even though they are just the same people you and I are. They just happen to speak a different language in a different country. And I, what I love about this movie also is that like, typically I feel like again, in a different movie that could have been made in like the exact same year, 1987, not a very progressive era. Like, after Tuan's very emotional speech, you'd get some super weird rah-rah America's great speech out of the Robin Williams-type character saying, Mm -hmm. like, no, we're here to save you. We did this for you. And instead, it's, nope, nope, he's going to eat that. That's going to sit there for a minute, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. there's not going to be a rebuttal because the the thesis of this movie doesn't really warrant a rebuttal. And um, 
I, I'm just so enamored with, with that as a concept. Um, or at least with that it, it, as, as it has been executed in the film. Because again, I would love it if it was made today. And just the fact that this, is, this movie is from 33 years ago and doing something as progressive as that is really, really wonderful to see. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about that I, I couldn't help notice more so on this most recent watch through is just how diff, uh, how, how wild the juxtaposition is between like a lot of Robin Williams's um, radio shows, you know, being all silly and goofy and then intersplicing that with shots of shit blowing up or tanks rolling in places or any of the, the kind of horrors of war stuff, not quite as horror of warish as you could have gotten, but kind of like the more of, more of violent of the scenes cut in between or, or during the comedic aspects, I think to kind of show one that this, even though this is a lighthearted movie has heavy subject matter because it's a war movie still. Uh, and, and two, to sh- kind of show what the, the point of the Robin Williams character is in the film and that like this shit's happening. And the only thing you have to distract from it is this guy being funny on the radio. Um, I don't know. Did you, did you think anything of that? Yeah, I mean, your second point is exactly how I saw it. You know, this was only my second time seeing the film, you know, first time in a couple of years. And this, I've said this before, like I didn't grow up with Robin Williams. It's someone I kind of dove into as a young adult. So like, I don't have the nostalgic feel of these movies. I just watch them now as an adult with adult perceptions about things and, you know, take them at the face value that I see them now. And that's immediately what hit me was, wow, like fighting in Vietnam was not some wild heroic shit. Like, yeah, those things happened. And, you know, those are the things that we hear about because it's exciting and heroic. And again, part of that American imagery that we've, you know, kind of plastered everywhere. And for the vast majority of people, it was a hot you know, muggy country, a lot of mud, explosions, fear, all this stuff going on and turning on that radio and escaping to some, you know, A plus comedy was probably the biggest factor in keeping your mind sane, keeping you straight when you're out there. Like it must have been awful. And just having this pure hour of escapism every day must have been amazing. Could you uh, could you imagine listening to this show live? No, especially after listening to like the guys they have, you know, filling out the rest of the roster. Like, uh, what was it, Sergeant Hawk? Imagine listening to an hour of that because you have nothing else to listen to, and then Robin Williams comes on and does that. Oh, oh one, of, one of one of my favorite like I don't know if it's a gag or if it was just meant again to show a different type of juxtaposition, but. But Robin Williams ending his show to turn over to Dan, the man, Levitan. And then Dan comes in and is like, and thank you, Adrian Cronow. And it's like so <laughs> soft. Gets me every time because I know who I am as a person. And if I was listening to that show live, I would have shut my radio off so fucking fast. Oh, absolutely. It, oh, like the dial would come off. Like, oh, my God. Um, like They must be on such a you know, by the minute routine every day. Cause you turn it on the second Robin Williams gets on. Cause that's the only enjoyment. 
you're going to get that day. And then the second he gets off, boom, there goes the radio too. You're on for exactly 60 minutes and zero seconds. Yeah. Yeah. And no, no more, no less. Um, so this movie takes place in a lot of places. Like, you know, we, we, we have the Robin Williams scenes of him in the English class, Robin Williams scenes with him and Twan, Robin Williams scenes of his radio broadcasts, uh, Robin Williams scenes interacting with the other, uh, military members. Um, did you have a particular, like, uh, I don't know what, what to call those in particular setting. I guess that 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 you ended up liking the best out of this. Um, I know there was a lot of like short, small jokes with like other service members that were like, "Oh, really?" made me la- made me laugh. Like there were great jokes that you know. A lot of times when we do comedies, like we'll just write down our favorite jokes and talk about them. And I don't know what it was, but like I I just didn't write a lot of them down. But the one that still sticks out to me now was when he was you know, stuck in that traffic jam and that Jeep unsure of whether he wanted to go back on the radio, like kind of lost the focus, you know, lost why he did it. And then just has a chance to sit there and talk with regular GIs, just dozens of them talking about how funny they think he is, how much they appreciate him and how much he does for him. And it was like, holy shit. Like, I don't know how deep they or how emotional they wanted to make the scene, how impactful they wanted it to be. But that's like the lasting scene in my head from watching this. And again, it, it, it it's it's a nice like short, sharp scene that nails in another one of the fundamental characteristics of who Adrian Cronauer is, is that he does what he does for the people and the um brass above him most notably sergeant major dickerson uh since general taylor seems to be all aboard the uh Cronauer train um want him to curb what he's doing in order to better conform to the military uh and their standards um so again it's just a nice scene showing where he puts his allegiance and uh where his heart is mm-hmm. uh which is which is a much more serious one than my favorite joke that I always think about from this movie, um, or my favorite. I don't know if it's my favorite scene, but it's the, it's the it's the thing that always fucking makes me laugh um, when he's getting chewed out by Sergeant Major Dickerson, and he and 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 Dickerson points to the symbol on his sleeve, and he goes, "You know what three up and three down means, soldier?" And Ralph goes, "End of an inning." <laughs> Yeah, I knew you were going to get that one. <laughs> oh, it gets me every single time. <laughs> uh, that, that, and when um, Jimmy Waugh says that he, uh, w- with the shiny green suit, I got it in Hong Kong, home of the shiny green suit. Love. Yo, also Jimmy Waugh, such an amazing character. So funny. <laughs> such a great character. And what what's what it's actually I think interesting about the Jimmy Waugh character that again I'm only really kind of thinking about on on this viewing this most recent viewing is that Southeast Asia is known for being very um open with their sexuality you know more so in Thailand than Vietnam but there is 
there is um, a, a, a public. I don't know what the right word is, huh? Acceptance. Yeah, it's it's tough because the governments are usually pretty like don't be gay, but the the public has a far more progressive view of it. And it was really interesting to see like Jimmy Wah is definitely gay in the movie. He keeps asking about like getting naked pictures of male celebrities, and there isn't like a single homophobic slur that I can think of being tossed around. Um, there's definitely anti-Asian slurs <laughs> that take place in Jimmy Wah's restaurant, which um well, had a very justice porn ending to it. Uh, but like Jimmy was pretty openly gay in the movie, and they're just like it's just like who he is. And that's one again, so progressive for 1987. Yeah, he was he's one of those characters that just so vividly unique, like visually, that oh, you yeah. can't forget them. Like he has such a air and style about him. Like you know exactly who we're talking about when we talk about Jimmy Watt. He, he, with the shiny green suit. Oh yeah, that smile, that like almost Jokerish smile. I know it feels. I, so I I don't know this for a fact, but I'm willing to bet that almost every single Asian person in this film is not an actor. Um, only because I know that that's a common thing to do, especially in this time period, just because uh, it might, I don't know why, maybe it was easier, it was cheaper, they didn't feel as though they could scrounge together enough um, uh, native English-speaking actors or SAG Asian actors, whatever the reason is. Um, Mm -hmm. So chance, there's a really high chance that the guy playing Jimmy Waugh is just like that, and (laughs) that to me is the best version of the world because I love him. Yeah, I just am loving the idea of like him owning a bar by that name and just being a place where like the director or like a producer just was sitting having a drink while they were scouting out places and they're like, we need you to just do this in front of a camera. Like just <laughs> everything you got going on, don't change a thing. He didn't even know they were and making a movie. Didn't flinch. Yeah, like he is just like, Sure, dude. Let's go right now. You want me to keep this suit on? I could take it right off if you want. Just hundred percent gung ho. Oh God, it's amazing. Um, and actually, just to, to to I guess stay on that same point. One of my one of my my notes here is that um, the Twan. I don't think the 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 man playing Twan is an especially good actor because again, if I had to bet, I'm would be willing to bet that he's not an actor. Um. But I do still think that he's very effective. I think he brings a lot of good charisma to a film. And I think oftentimes, that's all you really need. Um, he brings, obviously, great passion in the end. Uh, yeah, in the, the, the speech that, we, that you, know, you, you had talked about previously, um, that's, that's definitely like his, his Oscars moment, even though he didn't get a nomination. Because um, it's full of emotion and i'm willing to bet that since this is 87 and the vietnam conflict only ended like 15 years prior you know while he was probably young but um oh you know cognizant enough to maybe have a recollection uh for for that to be uh have have been a, a raw actual feeling of how he personally himself felt about the conflict um but i i i found him to be effective i thought he was he was totally cool on this 
Yeah, well, I don't... Like, he didn't really wow me leading up to that final scene. That scene itself was all I needed to see to think that he, you know, overall, this was a well-acted performance by him just because of that. That so was I... very, very well done. Yeah. Oh, no, agreed. He he is fully in it. Um, he has four acting credits. Good Morning okay. Vietnam. And then he appeared in one episode of a show called Early Edition in 2000. And then he appeared in one episode of Chicago PD in 2015 and is about to be in a short, sorry, is in a short film that came out this year, 2020, called Rednecks. So uh, I'm going to stand by my point and say that he is most likely not an actor. Um, but hey, good for him. He's got three credits in the 20. 20- 21st century so i'm all about it son go get it um the one actually okay so there's two scenes i do want to mention one of them just as a film scene i thought was perfect was when you know he goes on the air to talk about the bombing incident and they come in and shut off the power to the radio room they cut all the sound to the film whatsoever, and you're just sitting there in silence watching Robin Williams as they just pan over slowly to, uh, I don't want to say it's a ticker tape machine, but like it's a, just a constant feed of like the news broadcast coming in and just hearing that tick, 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 tick of essentially a typewriter going, you know, hyperspeed was like, wow, like that's, that's something you would see today as like, the key scene in a David Fincher movie or, you know, one of these, you know, well-known movies for being incredibly well shot. And I just think that's something I've never even seen be talked about, um, you know, as a Robin Williams movie that's kind of just underappreciated. So. Oh, great moment for sure. Um, And then the final one is the baseball scene right at the end. God, I wanted to see Randy Johnson out there, six foot, a billion, just throwing ninety nine past those suckers playing stickball with with those fucking melons or whatever they were. Beautiful, <laughs> throwing, throwing a melon ninety nine past like a four foot six, like ninety five year old Vietnamese woman who just then, literally ran home. <laughs> <laughs> and then they either, you know. Swing the master just blows past him. They don't even time to swing, and him just strutting his stuff like ten feet away. I uh, I love that it, that it, it it gives you that feel good moment there near the end, right before uh, before um, Robin Williams leaves. Yeah. I want to talk quick about two guys we didn't get to yet, and then I'm not sure I have too much else. Uh, Forrest Whitaker is in this like future Oscar winner. Forrest Whitaker is in this as a very young man. Um, what do you think about the Forrest Whitaker character? He's actually like, he has some really funny moments. Like, yeah, he plays like a really, you know, bumbly whatever, like not so serious Forrest Whitaker with the crazy eye bouncing all around, but he has some really funny moments. Yeah, every single time he starts the car. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just love how like Robin Williams knows it's going to happen every single time and does absolutely nothing to remind him. Wow. 86, 87 is a big year for, uh, for Forrest Whitaker, 86, he did the color of money and platoon. 
and then in '87 he had Good Morning Vietnam. Damn, that's in platoon. Yeah, that's a huge combo there. And he only started acting in like '82, so he came up pretty quick. I, I'm a, I love Forrest Whitaker. So yeah, I was a big fan of he. He, it's so funny because like I was I was telling Cal like he usually plays like really intense dudes and like you know the Oscar that he has is from um, Last King of Scotland where he plays like a crazy intimidating dude um, and so to see him like old me was incredibly surprised that that movie was not in fact about Scotland. <laughs> Yo, like eighteen year old me was surprised that movie wasn't about Scotland when I first watched it. I put that um, movie on and was shocked by the topic. Where's Braveheart? Um. Anyway, I always it was really nice to see him be like young and goofy. Uh, loved that. What do you think of Jack Kirby's character? Um, who is uh, I think per, sorry Bruno Kirby, Bruno Kirby's character as Lieutenant Stephen Hawke, um, who I think is such a amazing case of comic relief in what is already a comedy. It's such a great caricature of just like the most punchable person in the face, like ever. Just like you could totally picture what it would be like working for some guy like that and just being completely unable to take them seriously. Funny is good. Funny is good. <laughs> uh, and if I, you do, I, I know I'm funny. I don't care. <laughs> uh- <laughs> Oh God! I he was perfect in this. I loved it so much. Um, yeah, he seems like the worst. He got on the radio in 1965 and played polka to the soldiers. If I was listening, I would be absolutely furious. Like the the quotes that they read, the very blue quotes that they read um, from soldiers who'd been calling and writing in to voice their displeasure, is exactly how I would have sounded. Oh, absolutely! I had no idea that that Bruno character plays young Clemenza in The Godfather Part Two. Wow, I have to rewatch The Godfather Part Two because I don't even remember that. Yeah, like I can't not see him now that I look at the character, but it's like, yeah, that's perfectly that, except instead of playing the wildly, you know, forcibly unfunny, annoying kid, it's the fat trying to be a scary punk, but he's just, you know, some young kid. Clemenza. Damn, okay. Um I don't know, do you have any do you have any final notes on this? I just miss Robin Williams so much. Yeah, yeah, I almost cried. I love him so much. He was he was just perfect as a as a as a dude, as an actor, as a comedian. Loved him. I have to imagine he would have been the best best friend you could ever ask for. I I'd have to imagine the same and from all accounts it sounds like he was he he was that uh to a lot of people. Uh mm. But anything else on the film? Nope, that's it. All right, give me give me a, a rating and uh, and uh, and, a, and a final word on review. Um, man, it's just as much as I love the second half of the movie, the first half just that that love scene just kind of. I know the movie's better because it kind of distracts you with that and makes you think it's heading that one direction, but. 
having seen it so recently, it still hasn't sunk in. It's kind of sitting there. But man, Robin Williams is just so perfect in this. Uh, I feel weird giving it a four and that being a low score. But uh, whatever, it's kind of four. I, I think I'm going to match you on four here. I think I'm going to match you. I don't have a good reason for why it's not giving that four and a half. Um, I feel the exact same way. I Yeah, I don't have a good reason for why. I don't know what it is about it. I don't know what it could have done differently to elevate itself. Um, maybe comedy is just tougher to get up there for me. Um, even though, again, I think this is such... This plays the, 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 the line between comedy and drama so fluently. Um, but I don't, uh, yeah, I, I think, I think this is like you said, uh, one of the, the, the best Robin Williams movies. I think this is a great Vietnam movie. Um, I love it to pieces and I think, I think four is, is appropriate. I think four is very appropriate. Are you ready to talk about Kelly's heroes? Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's do it. So we have 1970. Kelly's Heroes, uh, directed by Brian G. Hutton, written by Troy Kennedy Martin, starring Clint Eastwood, Telly Savalas, Don Rickles, um, Carol O'Connor, Donald Sutherland, Uncle Leo from Seinfeld. Um, it had an estimated budget of Corwin. Do you want to guess? $36. Uh, four million dollars. Whoa. Yeah, nineteen seventy money. I can't even fathom how much that must have been. Do you want to know what its cumulative worldwide gross is? You want to guess? Forty-one million dollars. Five point two. Um, which yeah. means it earned its money back. Um, but I would be, I would be pressed to call this a success. Um, <laughs> shall we guess its tagline? It can't be good. Um, uh, grab the life by the balls. Um, it is never have so few taken so many for so much. That is a very yeah. bad tagline. Yeah, that's that, not great. It's, that's colossal garbage. I think it's top like twenty percent for what we've heard, you know, previously. But it doesn't make it great. Yeah. Uh, for reference, four million dollars is about twenty six million dollars, twenty six and a half million dollars today. Um, just because I am always curious about those things. Uh, anyway, it has uh, no major awards nominations. Um, Corwin, what do you think of Kelly's Heroes? Um, this has always been one of those movies where it's like I love the super dramatic. You know, like Saving Private Ryan's, you know, the Band of Brothers miniseries, like these historic World War II movies that are fairly true to form, fairly dramatic and heavy and overall exciting. And then I love throwing this on and just being like, fuck yeah, like this is fun. Like this movie knows exactly what it is. It doesn't take itself seriously in the slightest. And it's just like... Oddball is one of the best characters ever, and it just so perfectly encapsulates the movie of just like fucking positive vibes, man. Let's just have a good time. Let's have some fun, steal some gold. Like, what more can you ask? 
I, I'm going to contend throughout this review the exact opposite and that this movie has no idea what it's trying to be and that Oddball is the worst character of the movie. Oh, I hate you. And I will start by raising this issue. How the fuck is Oddball playing what is essentially a hippie character in what 1943 we're like 20 years removed from counterculture it made no sense i'm sitting there like this movie was made in 1970 and they clearly were trying to get young people out to go see donald sutherland be a hippie but it completely sacrificed like not only had like he'd be instead of tripping out to like 19 or late 60s early 70s music like hendrix and Zeppelin and all that. He's tripping out to what? The Dave Brubeck band? Like, what the hell is he even doing? Like, it didn't make any sense. Josh, why you come at, gotta come at me with those negative waves, man? Come on. It was, about it. it was bullshit. Don't get me wrong. I love Donald Sutherland and his, 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 his whole persona in a different movie but playing this character would be fun. But every time he was on screen, I just could, kept asking myself the question, what are you doing? What are you listening to? Like, I don't, you know, like, I know who that guy is in the movie that's made in 1970, that takes place in 1970. You know, like, he's like, yo, man, you gotta come listen to my uh, King Crimson record, bro, like, with my with my Blacklight poster. Maybe it's a little bit early for that. Uh, but, like, it's 1940-fucking-3! Like, like, are you balling up to Sinatra? Like, I don't, I don't, are, is, are, you, 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 you're freaking out to Herbie Hancock? And these are people I love, you know, these are people I love, but like, no white man's get, getting stoned and listening to Coltrane records in 43, man. Like, that's just not the scene yet. Uh, it's clearly 1944 after the invasion of Normandy. You fucking plebe. Get your shit 44. I'm sorry. I knew you'd know the exact year. I didn't feel like looking it up. Listen, man, this movie stars a hippie tank driver, Clint Eastwood being a cowboy, clearly not in the Wild West, bribing the German army and Uncle fucking Leo building a bridge and a straight out of a New York Times character of George Patton. So you're thinking too much. But but, so that's my other thing, though, is that like. This movie is so long. It's so very, very long. Huh? It doesn't... It's not that long. It's two and a half hours long. It didn't feel that long. Wow. It's two and a half hours long. This movie's fucking long. And it's not like it's a fun, casual romp. So many people die in this movie. Like, there is so much... There's so much death and destruction in this, like, light, breezy comedy. And it feels like because Donald Sutherland is such a bizarro, calm character and Clint Eastwood's such a hard-nosed, normal, like, cowboy character, and then you have all these other people who are crossing this whole spectrum of other weird characters, that the movie just never really fully... Again, this feels like how we talked about Bridge on the River Kwai, where it's like, they just try to appeal to everybody. This feels like that. They just made a movie that was like, we need a funny guy. We need a hot guy. We need a serious guy. We need a Jewish guy. We need Don Rickles. Like, and they just threw all that shit in the movie, sent him to Yugoslavia, gave him a tank, and were like, hey, man, 
there's gold in a bank behind enemy lines. You're going to go steal it with tanks and kill like 90 people along the way. Mm-hmm. And they were like, yeah, that's hilarious. Damn right. Josh, you're focusing way too much on the trees when you should be seeing the forest. Yeah, you could pick hole Like, there are more holes in this than something like a net. Swiss fucking know. cheese. Yeah, no, like, this has way more holes than Swiss cheese. You know, like, different spectrum. You just got to accept it for what it is. The climatic, like, battle scene of this movie Everything's coming together. They're fighting three tiger tanks in this small French town. And fucking Donald Sutherland is stopping for a wine and cheese break. And the guy just casually walks over and he's like, what are you guys doing? You're taking it way too seriously and just need to sit back and enjoy the show. Because it's fantastic. I I can't because they keep killing people. (laughs) I can't. So many people died. And let me ask you this, Corwin. I have this written down. Why are they called Kelly's heroes? They are clearly the bad guys. Are we the baddies? Just just because there are also Nazis in the movies doesn't make what Kelly's heroes doing super fucked up. (sighs) Yeah, it's not great. Like they are clearly in the wrong. (laughs) I definitely won't argue that point. You know. The whole argument of like, well, we only get paid $50 a week. It's like, yeah, well, there's kind of bigger fish to fry than like what you're doing. Like you got drafted. Like you got to be here. Um, Again, you're focusing on the trees instead of seeing the forest. Beautiful forest made out of some wacky trees. Corwin, I will I will accept it if you say, look, this is a guilty pleasure movie where the mind gets turned off and I don't think about any of what's going on and just enjoy the explosions. But, See, Josh, you but, can't just say you'll be happy and then just say my entire stance on the movie and just pretend like this is a compromise. I will be That's happy if you but Corwin, I got 30 minutes into this movie and was so furious I turned it off. This is your Ikaru. <laughs> yeah, it really, it really is. This 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 is I I was thinking about it. Kellen, I turned it on um like Monday or Tuesday night. And when I found out that you and I wouldn't be recording until like thir- until tonight, Thursday, I looked at Kellen and I was like, I'm gonna do this like another time. I'll do this <laughs> during my work day. I cannot do this right now. Um and then I kept looking up while working so confused as to why everyone was doing all of the things they were doing. It was like at one point, the one patney guy is in like a red suit, but he also <laughs> seemed to be home and asleep and he was like eavesdropping on the radio about them stealing the gold and he was, I was like, what? Who? What? 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 <laughs> what? Don't think too much. <laughs> He's a general who's wearing his pajamas that just happens to be his exact uniform in the color red. <laughs> so I'm saying it's like it's like halfway to naked gun but it's not far enough there where you can take it that lightly like imagine naked gun but with like actual death and consequences <laughs> and stakes like this person, damn 
It's perfect. <laughs> this this is this is a farce. No, it's perfection. It's comedic gold, and you just do not appreciate it because you're not of the time. I, I did miss one thing, and I will ask for your enlightenment, just because I, I actually missed it, um, and I don't understand. It happened at the very beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. How 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 did how did they get the first bar of gold in the first place? Um, it was in the satchel bag of the German officer that Kelly captures. Right, but why was it there? Um, he was basically part of the like organization for this convoy like transporting the gold and he just had some on him i don't know just they don't explain it they don't think about it <laughs> that's what i'm saying like he knows where the gold is and the only reason they know that is because they find a bar of gold on his person but it's like the middle of the war <laughs> like, so, like why does he find, have the gold they find the bar of gold and it's covered in like this like paint or like this this I thought it was like dirt or clay yeah, or Yeah, whatever like it is to make it seem like a lead bar and they get him fucking plastered and like, yo, what is this? It's like, oh fuck, dude, it's gold over there. Go get it. Fuck yeah, I'm drunk. And then they have their wacky adventures and he gets killed by a tank. Like that's that's all you gotta know, Josh. They're wacky two and a half hour long adventure it is a very concerning amount of time josh too many negative waves man what have i told you about these negative waves i I listen listen bill spaceman lee i don't want to listen to your weird red Sox nonsense okay (laughs) not on my good yankees i can we go track down donald sutherland write him a letter and ask him to defend his character on whether or not it was genius or incoherent. I guarantee you Donald Sutherland's going to be like, man, I was hungry and they offered me food. <laughs> I and we'd be like, totally yeah, Donald Sutherland, like, you weren't that was, famous yet. I could totally see him just being like, I was fucking high as a kite that entire time. I don't even remember. <laughs> Um, apparently Donald Sutherland got seriously ill during filming on location in Yugoslavia. His wife received a telegram telling her to come immediately, but warning her that he would probably be dead before she arrived. Hmm. Do they say what it was? I don't see anything. No. Um, I see that it was filmed in Yugoslavia because the Yugoslavian army had a bunch of old Sherman tanks just sitting around. I guess they never cleaned up. Um. Yeah. Um, I need to admit something real quick while looking up some information on Donald Sutherland. Uh, I never watched Mash going growing up. I had no idea he was Hawkeye. Yes, that's pretty cool. Did not know that. I feel like I need to go um, back and watch Mash now. Also, a, a fact that I just didn't know is apparently during filming, um. Donald Sutherland, via co-star Clint Eastwood, learned that his then-wife Shirley Douglas was arrested, actress Shirley Douglas, because she had tried to buy, using a personal check, hand grenades from an undercover FBI agent for the Black Panthers. Which is a wild sentence. (laughs) 
That's um that was a roller coaster of a statement. I'll tell you that. So apparently at some point Clint Eastwood had heard that Shirley Douglas, who was married to Donald Southern, was arrested. Why you might ask? (laughs) Because she was trying to buy hand grenades with a check. It's like groceries. Yeah, like buying hand grenades from the Black Panthers is already an outrageous statement. Using a personal check is just mind-bogglingly dumb. (laughs) But, Your Honor, I didn't do it. Um, (laughs) Ma'am, these checks are from your personal stationery. They're come. Is your name right fucking here at the bottom? Did, in your did hand you write writing? on the memo line a quote from Forrest Gump? Thank you, Black Panther Party. Oh God, that was a disgusting Forrest Gump impersonation. I am ashamed for just doing that. I thought oh, it would be so much better. I'm so glad we have that forever. Oh, no. Yeah. I am remorseful. I am sorry. It's it's okay, buddy. People of the world that don't live on Long Island. No, that don't live in Long Island. Ooh, that's disrespectful right there. <laughs> Ooh. That's that's a whole new level of shade. Saying that they live in Long Island. Yeah, it happens. Um I really honestly, Corwin, I don't have anything productive to say left. I shouted Uncle Leo out loud at my laptop when he showed up on screen. I was flabbergasted. Uncle Leo? I was fla- I wrote down, what is Uncle Leo doing in this? I, I wrote down, Uncle Leo, question mark, question mark, exclamation point, exclamation point. <laughs> oh, hold on. I do have one other note here. Um... Just because I was kind of dipping in and out of how much I was paying attention to this after like the totally first forty five minutes, um, the gold was in a bank, right? Uh huh. Did it belong to somebody, or was the bank occupied by like was the was all the assets of the bank stolen by the Nazis? Uh, as you could imagine, not expressly discussed by the intellectual characters of this movie. Uh, it was just a bank that was guarded by the German army. So, you know, finders keepers, am I right? And remind me of what, what country this, this movie takes place in? Uh, France. So they just stole from some French yeah. civilians. Well, yeah. I, I, I feel a, like that's very much their MO. Gold. <laughs> they, stole, they stole from French people. They are the worst people alive. They like liberate that entire town too. That like the bank is located in, and everyone's like super happy and celebrating. And it's like they just robbed you. <laughs> oh my god, they're the worst. <laughs> they're gonna. They all got court-martialed after this and rotted in jail. Oh my god, <laughs> so bad. They killed so many people. Just to steal from the people they liberated at the end. Oh my god, Corwin, this is such a bad movie. I love this movie. <laughs> I love this movie so much. Oh my god. Oh my god. This is this is an incredible revelation. I I have nothing else to say. Do you have anything to say? Fantastic movie. Favorite Clint Eastwood movie. 
Oh, shut the no, fuck up. And the week after Ennio Morricone dies, you will not put that blasphemous talk on my radio show. Um, it definitely highlighted the fact that Clint Eastwood does one character, and that's all he's ever done in his entire life. <laughs> it's such a shame because this would have been such a great opportunity for him to be a goofball, even to like a mild extent because of how much sillier everyone else around him was, if he had lightened up like a little bit, um, he still would have been like the grizzled dude, but could have shown some range. And instead he decided to play this like just how he is. I, I imagine the director went up to him and was like, Clint, you know, like this is going to be a great time. We're going to shoot a great movie. Like we're going to have so much fun doing this. Just, Hey, go out there, let loose, have fun. Clint's just like, mm, no. And just goes and does his cowboy staring at other people. Yeah, which is part of the reason he's so effective in the Man With No Name trilogy, because uh, the fact that he has no lines works very well into his whole steely gaze thing. But uh, in this raucous romp, it doesn't quite <laughs> land the same way. Um, all right, Corbin, give me a rating and review. I can't talk about this anymore. Um, this is one of the most fun guilty pleasure movies where you can just turn your mind off and just enjoy a good time that you can have. Uh, I love it with a passion. Uh, I think it's a fantastic watch, and I give this a four out of five. You cannot possibly be serious. (laughs) I quite possibly am. I hate you. (laughs) Nope, four out of five. This movie's fantastic. (laughs) Fuck you. I want to see what um, actual reviewers say about this movie. While you're doing that, um, man, if this movie was like an hour shorter, I would be so much more on board with like the turn your mind off and don't care. But this is this is only 16 minutes shorter than Bridge on the River Kwai. Like, it's a very long movie. It's a very long movie too long move i will give this a one i i did not care for this adventure through normandy or france or wherever they were to watch them kill many a people to make the nazis the good guy (laughs) this is a very bad movie i love this movie it's fantastic it is is a one-star movie um Um, what what do you think this got on Metacritic? Oh man, um, it's tough because like I feel like Metacritic always favors older movies, but at the same time, I really did not enjoy this, so I'll split the difference and say sixty-five. You are very much incorrect, sir. What do you get? A fifty. <laughs> <laughs> that is not good. Um. I really wish that uh, Roger Ebert wrote a review of this movie because uh, I would love to hear what he had to say, but uh, he didn't, so we're shit out of luck. Damn, Roger Ebert. Why didn't you do that for us? It could have been such an adventure. Your time, as valuable as it is, why didn't you spend two and a half hours watching this? You had so much to give, and you chose not to. How dare you, Mr. Ebert? Oh well, I suppose we'll survive. Uh, yep, yep, yep. What's your movie uh, for next week, Josh? D- 
Damn it, can you go first? I'm still looking. <laughs> no, because we got to play our little game, Josh. Guess a number, 1 through 20, to determine what movie we will watch from my list. All right, I'll pick number 14. 14, I should bring the... Ooh, I am excited. Blade Runner 2049. Oh, I could use a rewatch of that. That was a good movie. What's right on. Movie? Hopefully we both agree that it's a good movie. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, fingers crossed. Also, buckle up for that one. It is not short. No. Um, oh, it's so long. It's so long. I also want to pick Blade Runner now so that we can we can talk about like you know, the one two punch that is those um films cuz I recently rewatched Blade Runner having read the book and my opinion on it is now vastly different. I don't um, like that movie. I don't like I don't one. either. I I have like fond memories of it. And I discovered in my re- relatively recent rewatch that the only reason I have fond I had fond memories of it was because of the final uh, monologue, um, the tears and the rain speech, which is a wonderful part of the film, and it sticks out so awkwardly because of how not great the rest of the movie is. Um, but the book is phenomenal, and God damn it, I'm so sad that they didn't make that book into the movie. Um, but yeah, all right, so. Yeah. 2049 blade runner 2049 so i'm currently near the tail end of going through um hollywood reporters 100 greatest movies of all time and i'm really fucking disappointed because i've seen all of them so far really oh my god yeah i have and this is kind of soul crushing I just got to the last one. I've seen all 100 of this of these movies. Fuck. God damn it. I kept telling myself, just the first one you haven't seen. Just pick the first one you haven't seen. It'll be so easy. You'll just you'll just watch it. And I saw all of them. And that's just not helpful to me. Um Damn Josh. That's rough. I watch that's a, a really lot of rough life you live. Yeah, I watch there's there, there's a lot of movies up in up in my noggin. Um you wanna been guess a, another number from my list? <laughs> Um, I don't because I want you to save those for the future. Um, I kind of want to pick something Mel Brooks ish for the Carl Reiner passing. Mm. I'm also staring here at Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and that's a great movie, too. Um, but I really, I was, I'm feeling, I feel bad picking movies I've already seen too much because, like, I've already seen them and I'm going to be biased as a result of it. You know what I mean? Right. All right. You know what? No, I'm going to pick a rewatch, but I think that it's poignant. Um, and I think it'll be it'll be a, a very rewarding rewatch. Uh, I'm going to pick The Great Dictator. Ooh, okay. The Charlie Chaplin film from 1940, um, one of his all-time classics. Since it is from 1940, it's made during the height of World War II. Um, it is uh, a direct uh, political commentary against Adolf Hitler. Um, and... Well, it's sad that it's gained a lot of relevance in the most in the last, uh, well, we'll say three and a half years or so. But here we are, um, and uh, I think it'll be—it's a movie I haven't seen in a while, and I am uh, looking forward to this rewatch to gain some some insights on it, uh, living in the current climate that we are. Uh, I have a comment about it, but I will wait until we are off the air. Ooh, it's just, How a, it's just a question about it that I don't want to spoil for the podcast. So it's not as exciting as you think. Very fair. 
Very fair. All right. Um, anything else before we go? Uh, fuck Long Island. <laughs> fuck Long Island. Fuck the Islanders. Fuck your entire existence. <laughs> John Tavares. <laughs> <laughs> he hates you. He hates you. He that never Brady liked you. As everyone thought he was going to be. <laughs> Whatever, bro. He didn't win here. He's not going to win anywhere. No. You suck, Islanders. You Enjoy won four point. straight chips and have been irrelevant since. You won four straight championships and are still the third most popular franchise in the area. How? Enjoy your 50-cent ticket prices because none of you will even go when they're that low. <laughs> Please, if they left 50% fan capacity in the stadium, that'd be an increase. hey Fuck oh, y'all, shitty-ass team. We just lost our only listener. <laughs> Mark? Mark Anthony? Oh, well. Anyway. Uh, all right, so Corwin's pick. Um, fuck, what was it? Blade Runner 2049. Blade Runner 2049. Uh, my pick, uh, The Great Dictator from Charlie Chaplin 1940. Uh, you can follow the show on Twitter at Juicy Pod. You can answer via email at juicethenumbers at gmail.com. And until Monday, y'all have a good one. Bye.